Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Together, we'll make the case for lyrical theology. In other words, for not just reading our theology, but also singing it. Music in worship is meant to be sung prayer. So we'll discuss what kind of songs lend themselves best to this use and dig deep into a song we recently sang in worship to show how valuable it is to fill our hearts with beautifully expressed truth. When it comes to choosing songs, especially songs for worship, I have a feeling that most of us make those choices based on, let's say, aesthetic considerations. So we choose songs that we like, and we like them because we like the way that they sound. But maybe there should be more to it than that. Uh, Cameron, you have an advantage over me because not only are you theologically astute, but you are, uh, in addition to many other hats that you wear and have worn, a singer-songwriter. And so you know what it's like not only to sing the songs, but to write them as well. And I was wondering if you thought maybe there was more to it than just choosing the songs we like the sound of. Well, yes, of course. If, if we're talking about music for church especially, um, there's nothing wrong with the song that sounds nice, but we've talked about worship music on this podcast before, like prayer. So what that means to me is that we need to pick songs that are praying things that we want to pray to God. So we're looking at the content, the lyrics, and what those things are saying about us and our relationship with God. So you're not saying that it doesn't matter how the song sounds as long as the lyrics are good. Yes, I am saying that. Though it's, I, I'm not sure how to balance it out exactly because okay. I, I could see, you know, and I've, I've experienced times where we have sang, not necessarily at our church, but in the past, we've sang songs where the lyrics are great and, and it's worth it for the lyrics. It's okay. worth it for the theology, but the song musically is just not, not all that captivating for me. And sure. I still think it's worth it. Okay. But the ideal is maybe beautiful lyrics and beautiful music all around. Right. No, I, I agree with that. Now that you've said it, I, I know I'm hearing it. I yeah. think that's right. Um, I think one of the things I've loved about the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years where there's been this movement towards taking old hymns and setting them to new music is that, if it works out rightly, you get this ideal where you have really good lyrics set to music that is better than the music of the past. Of course, some of the music of the past is wonderful mm -hmm. and shouldn't be tampered with. But I think in, in instances where the lyrics far outshine the the melody, let's say, right. uh, it, it can be a welcome change. But so I appreciate that. The lyrics could be so good that it doesn't matter if if the tune doesn't live up to them or not. It's still worth it. Uh, but let me ask you this, like, like why or what criteria could I use to determine that the lyrics are worth it? You know, what should I be judging lyrics based on? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it does come back to what I just said about prayer. So 
maybe using scripture as a guide for the sorts of things that we want to say about God. First off, we're worshiping God, so we're using scripture to tell us about God. Um, and then the Psalms, for example, telling us what we should be thinking about ourselves. So I think it comes down to theology. The The theology in in the lyrics should be biblical. I mean, we could just set the Westminster Confession to music, but um, but we don't typically do that. Um, so there's got to be some kind of, I guess, meeting in the middle, right? Like good theology, well expressed or something like that. We- yeah, yeah, you're right. Maybe it is. It's uh, a kind of a poetic theology. Okay, yeah, no, something I like that. that. I like that. So a, a poetic expression of the theology uh, maybe because in particular it is meant to be prayer. Mm-hmm. So it it's going to be different than me just reading aloud the confession of faith, which gives me an intellectual uh, stimulus and reminds me of the truth and is glorious and all of that. But, but when it's set to music and done in an artistic way, I'm appropriating that theology and kind of f- experiencing it, feeling it, you know, mm-hmm. owning it in the heart in a way that is different. I think maybe it'd be helpful if we just had an example that we could take a look at of, of a hymn that works in this way. And I think our, our worship service this past Sunday actually gives us a great example, and that's uh, Before the Throne of God Above. Mm-hmm. This is a 19th century hymn, so it's not that old. I mean, we think of that as a long time ago, but in uh, the overall scheme of church history, it's not that long ago. It was written by Charity Lees Bancroft, and she was um, an Irish hymnist, the daughter of an Anglican minister in Ireland, and wrote uh, this as really kind of a um, a good example, I suppose, of what we were just talking about, of, of a a song where the, the lyrics are there, but the music that originally comes with it is is good. That we, we don't need to fix yeah. this one, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's um it's been redone a few times by modern groups, but they retain the original melody because it's so mm. great. So it's been done many, many times. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought maybe we could walk through this song in its whole because it's only three verses and kind of just experience the beauty, but also maybe unpack some of the theology in the lyrics. Yeah. So we'll just do like a, a reading of it as if it were a, mm-hmm. a poem and kind of try to experience both the, the, the poetry and the theology of it. You want to take that first stanza? Yeah. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. Yeah, so there's a lot of stuff here to observe, but maybe we should start with the the obvious theological stuff. So we have... Uh, standing before God's throne, a, a plea that's being made by a high priest whose name is love. Um, what thoughts does this conjure? Yeah, the first thing that I, I mean, that catches your attention is just that image of being before the throne of God. And it 
it makes me wonder why. Okay, why why is this where the song begins, and why are we standing right here? And yeah, I guess the theological answer there would be in that third line where we see Jesus as a high priest. So we're kind of taken back to the Old Testament to this the ritual system of the Old Testament, and we're we're coming into the presence of God, but there's a high priest mediating for us. And clearly in this first verse, that high priest is Jesus. Right, right. So, you know, the kings of Israel were the judges of Israel, ultimately. And so you went before the throne of the sovereign in order to get justice or judgment. Mm -hmm. And here, I think in that second line, I have a strong and perfect plea. You get the sense that it's there's a judicial context. So I'm standing before this throne. There's going to be judgment. I have to have a plea of some kind. And that plea is strong and perfect, and it is, in fact, the person of my high priest, Mm. Jesus Christ. So he is my plea. Uh, He is the one who's going to answer for me in this case. So that's, um, you know, theologically speaking, that's the doctrine of Christ's intercession. Mm -hmm. And that's a work that Christ, who's seated at the right hand of the Father, continually makes for his people where he is the go-between he is the one who uh, makes the plea for us for our lives uh, on on behalf of us to the father yeah he or the fourth line here it says whoever so the high priest whoever lives and pleads for me so i I like that it gets at the eternal nature of of christ's intercession his perpetual intercession Mm -hmm. yeah and so the identity we have in Christ, my, my name is graven on his hands, written on his heart, so that I can know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Mm-hmm. Like No one can cast me out as long as he's there right. as my representative. As we think about this, it, it strikes me that this is a great example of the kind of prayer in song form that you would want to commit to memory. Mm-hmm. Because in prayer, that idea of Christ's intercession is something we cling to. You know, that he is the one who makes sure that our needs are heard before the Father. He is the one who is constantly there, like putting in the good word for us. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful, I think, that the song begins with that reflection. You know, it starts with Christ's intercession and gets into other aspects of of Christ as it goes, but it actually starts with that thing that, that maybe is most immediate to the life of prayer. Yeah. All right. You want to take verse two? Sure. Okay. So verse two, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, to look on him and pardon me. There's a technical thing worth observing here, and there's probably a word for it in the music, but but both of these stanzas have like a turn at the middle, like uh, on the fifth line. Mm-hmm. So in the first stanza, uh, the, the first idea ends with whoever lives and pleads for me, and then it turns to my name is graven on his hands. Here, we have an end in the second stanza with who made an end of all my sin. And then the turn, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted mm-hmm. free. So there's kind of a, 
like a one-two punch, like one idea is expressed and then the consequence of it is is poured out as the verse develops. Yeah, and at that point too, the melody lifts too. Mm. And I, I think that's intentional because it's kind of the lyrics and the music together are, are bringing us up into this, this place of, of grace. One thing about this second verse that I think is interesting is this contrast between the way Satan tempts us to despair and does so by telling us to look within. That despair comes when we see the guilt and the sin inside of us, but that the answer to that, according to this verse, is to look without. So if right. the guilt is coming from within, the solution is to look, let's see, how, how do they say it? Upward, upward I look, yeah. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. And I, I think that's really, I mean, that's just good reformed theology that you don't look inward all the time to assess the state of your your salvation it's almost following verse one it's verse one is establishing our relationship with god and then verse two is kind of like your life yes and, yes and i think there's a you might think of the inward turn as subjective mm -hmm. right the mm -hmm. self-scrutiny and the outward turn brings us to something objective exactly. we look upward towards the objective work of christ for assurance it's also interesting too that the First verse sets up you know, the father and the son as intercessor and then us. And here we have us and Satan. And then as an alternate sort of view, the son once again. So where he is and an intercessor between us and the father, he is also like an alternative between us and Satan, you know, he's, he's another reference point that casts into doubt the temptation that Satan plagues us with yeah. towards despair. And here it's interesting too, because that, that first section of stanza two upward, I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. That's a line you need to think about because what what does she mean when she says that he made an end to all my sin? Because one way of reading that would be that that my sin is no longer happening. Like he brought my sinning to an end, mm -hmm. but that clearly cannot be the the meaning here. So so there needs to be some understanding, and I think the understanding of what she means comes in the second part of that stanza. So bringing an end to all my sin, he does this in the way that follows. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. Mm -hmm. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So that's how he's brought an end to all my sin. Or brought you, know, you could almost say like a fulfillment. Like he's brought the story of my sin to a conclusion, even though I'm still in the midst of it. But he's done it through his death. So if we say the first verse centers on the intercession of Christ. Maybe the second verse focuses on the substitutionary atonement of Christ here, where God accepts the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And that's how our sin comes to an end. Exactly. And, and you know, she says, God, the just is satisfied. So mm -hmm. she's talking about the satisfaction of a, a penalty or a sentence. It's been satisfied by what Christ has done. And 
God looks on him and pardons us. So he is a substitute. His work substitutes for us in the same way that in a positive sense, his life of righteousness is imputed to us. Here, the, the passive obedience, his obedience and suffering allows our sin to be covered by his blood so that he can suffer as our, uh, as our lamb who was slain. Which gets us to verse 3. It does. <laughs> I'll take this one. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. Well, I can't hear that without thinking of John's revelation vision of the, the Lion of Judah who has conquered, who is presented as the Lamb who was slain. Mm-hmm. And so we see Christ here as the risen lamb, Christ in his resurrection, in his spotless righteousness, but it is my perfect spotless righteousness. Like he has become my righteousness. And then she starts attributing to him all of these divine titles, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. So this is clearly Christ in his glory, right? That's being referred to. Yeah, it's interesting that she only begins to attribute those things to him after his resurrection. It's, I I don't think that's, that's an accident. His resurrection is, you know, the validation of his work and his identity as the son of God, the great unchangeable I am in the, the king of glory and grace. Right. And so in the, the heart of that stanza, we hear one with himself. I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. So, I cannot die because I am one with him. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different ideas here. I'm clearly resurrection is a big theme here, but, but I'm going to say the, the overwhelming one is union with Christ, that all the benefits that we have in salvation come to us because we are one with him. We're in union with him, or as she puts it, my life is hid with Christ on high. Mm -hmm. And so again, we see a very like like deep theology, but expressed in a way that makes it prayerful, that makes it like a uh, a thing that we can cherish in our hearts. You know, we have the intercession in the first stanza. We have like reassurance when we feel tempted in the second stanza, and then in the third, just a confidence and a, a joy that comes from being united with Christ. So I think that gives you like a great idea of why a hymn like this can be so rich and so powerful uh, in worship and also in everyday life. And one of the reasons why we uh, curate hymns like this, because not only do we want to sing songs because we like them, but we want to sing songs because they're worth kind of hiding in our hearts and, and using as our prayers. Right. I'll say one last thing about this. I, I chose this song this past week to be sung right before the sermon. And we've never done that before, but I thought that this song would actually be fitting there because it is talking about coming before the presence of God and, and coming before him 
with assurance and boldness. And I think that's something that that we want to be doing when we're receiving God's word. We're hearing from him. We're, we're standing before his word. And it's good to, to hear these promises and this good news before that, I think. That's all the time we have for now. Thanks, Cameron. And thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed the commentary, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.